0: Hello, and welcome to HPS Insights. I'm Brian DeAngelis, a partner here at Hamilton Place Strategies and one of our regular podcast hosts. This week, we are bringing back a episode from last year that was a great conversation. I think you all will enjoy this one. Again, my colleagues, Stacey Kerr and Kristen McIntosh interviewed Linda Goler Blunt of the Black Women's Health Imperative Linda is the president and CEO of the only national organization focused on Black women's physical, emotional, and financial wellness. This was a great conversation last year, but we think it's still a a very important conversation for our listeners uh, this year as well. We thought you'd all enjoy this, and we hope you'll give it a listen, and we'll be back next week with some new episodes.
1: From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast.
2: Hello, and welcome to HPS Insights. We're thrilled to be joined today by my colleague, Kristen McIntosh, a new managing director here at HPS, and our very special guest, Linda gowler blount the president and CEO of the Black Women's Health Imperative. Hi, Linda.
3: Hi, Stacey. Hi, Kristen. It's great to Hi, be Kristen. here with you.
4: Hello.
2: Linda, we're so pleased to have you, Linda. um, uh, Black Women's Health Imperative is the only national organization dedicated to uh, the health and wellness of Black women and girls. So we're going to dig in and talk about Black Women's Health Imperative. Um, But Linda, you know, I'm I'm so happy to have you here as a um, really distinguished career as a scientist working in public health. You've had been inside and outside of the public and private sectors, with senior roles at the CDC, the United Way of Atlanta, the Coca-Cola companies. I think you bring a really interesting um, perspective to the work as CEO and president of uh, Black Women's Health Imperative, but also uh, uh, to, this, to this moment. So we're really excited for this, this conversation. It, it, Linda, it feels like um, the work of a scientist dedicated to the work of Black women Marrying the public sector and the private sector, you feel so met for this moment. And yet, you've been doing the work for a long time, and Black women's health imperative has been around for a long time. So, let's just share with our listeners what is the Black women's health imperative?
3: Yeah, thanks, Stacey. And, and you know, I, I agree. I think this is the moment, um, but it's been a moment in the making, really. Yes. The Black Women's Health Imperative is in its 39th year as the only national organization focused on Black women's physical, emotional, and financial wellness. And it's interesting, um, 30 almost 39 years ago, Billy Avery, the founder of the Black Women's Health Imperative, brought 2,000 of her closest friends together on Spelman's campus to talk about not only how we should take care of each other, but how we should take care of ourselves. So we, we began really as a self-care movement. And for all of those years, that, that, that movement mentality, that sort of that imperative has really guided our work so that our programs have been focused on how we can take care of ourselves to, to get the best possible health outcomes, to live our lives fully take care of our families, and, and of course, by extension, community. But we've also realized that, that you know, some 20 years ago that there was a policy piece to this as well.
0: Mm-hmm. You
3: know, much of why Black women were experiencing the kind of health outcomes they were was because they were literally barriers to their ability to choose health-promoting activities, have access to the best health care, have access to information, have access to resources, So we embarked upon a significant policy focus about 20 years ago, and that is very much where we are today. We are in the halls of Congress. We're also working at the state level as well. But there was one other piece that was required, and, and that's what I brought, and that was research. Black women, Black people are not well represented in research, as you know. And much of what we consider to be evidence, um, frankly, isn't applicable to us. And so it was very important for the Black Women's Health Imperative to to help women understand the importance of research, but also policymakers to, to understand the importance of research and why Black women, Black men, the Black community and Brown community needs to be included in research. So our focus now is on policy, reproductive health and rights, HIV prevention, chronic disease prevention, and now um, participation in clinical research and making sure that the provider and healthcare pipeline represents us and then serves us so we can get the best possible health outcomes.
2: Good. Well, and Linda, we're going to get into all these issues and um, that, like I say, feel so met for this moment, but I want to stay on this again uh, for a minute on just your leadership and coming into the, to the, to the, um, to, to lead the organization in 2014, as you have I think laid out there, they had set on this um, policy and research agenda, can you share a little bit about what was unique about your background because I know you were at the CDC and you are a scientist, and you you brought that experience into the organization what do you what like what do you think attracted them to you and what attracted you to them in 2014
3: well I, I like to say that it may have been because of my checkered past. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I cut, like a lot of public health folks, I cut my public health teeth on CDC, looking working in the, in the HIV AIDS area, developing geographic information systems in, in the early 90s um, to help track HIV and, and, and AIDS cases. But I also had a, a couple of, of really important experiences. One, I left the country... Uh, my family and I moved to Trinidad and Tobago, where I got a very different perspective on what health was. This was a, a low resource country, considered developing country. And what I saw was that the literacy rates actually in Trinidad and Tobago were much higher than the literacy rates in the U.S. Health outcomes were much better. So while we talked about health disparities, what I realized was it had nothing to do with race. It had to do with access and power and the Mm -hmm. kinds of wealth or lack thereof that black Americans were experiencing in this country. And then when I came back from Trinidad and Tobago, I took a slight detour and went to work Mm -hmm. for the Coca-Cola company, which doesn't seem like sort of an obvious next step for somebody in, in public health or epidemiology. But what I learned there was the value of storytelling and marketing. We in public health have a product to sell. We don't often realize that, Mm. but we do. And we do an absolutely lousy job of selling our product, which is health. And so I think Mm. one of the things that made me attractive to the Black Women's Health Imperative was that I knew how to tell a story. I knew how to connect the dots between the way Black women live today and and our environment and what influences our health beyond just the science, but- you know, what we talked about was, what does it mean to be a Black woman in this society in this time? And we've used that approach to inform our work. Because first, we start with no matter what we're doing, how do you feel? What is happening? You know, Margaret Heckler issued the first report on health disparities in 1985. And in many respects, things are worse now than they were then. But we have an opportunity to look at things differently. And for the last um, seven years, that's what we've been doing. And Black women have responded with, finally, somebody understands how we view our health and how mm-hmm. we view our role and our, and, and our health kinds of behaviors in society. And we're not treated as subjects or simply the culmination of our diseases or conditions.
2: Well, it's it's so interesting that you bring the storytelling into it um, Linda, because I think, you know, as we've gotten to know Black Women's Health Imperative, and we're doing some some work together, and I think of three things about BWHI and your leadership. I, I, BWHI, I think of your leaders, your storytellers, and your collaborators. And I wonder if you can, and that's what I think makes you that the the leadership and the collaboration for today. I think make. BWHI so powerful, and you do it through the storytelling. Can you talk a little bit about that collaboration model and just, I think, share? Because I, I think when you, when you see the work of, of, of BWHI, I think there's thousands of people back there doing the work, and you actually are small, you're mighty, and you collaborate with others to bring them into the work. So talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, and and we we have to. I mean, I have I have heard from several people to say, "Oh, so what do you have? Like fifty people, sixty people?" It's like no, yeah. <laughs> you know, there now there are you know twenty of us, um, so we've grown a bit, but the, you know we do we do a lot, but we do a lot in community, mm-hmm. and we are very much you know still on that same path that Billy Avery set us on of community of working with our sisters and brothers. It across industries, across um, sectors, because Black women's health, number one, is not only a Black woman's issue. Absolutely. And Black women's health is not only a health issue. There's so much of what determines our health that has nothing to do with medical care, delivery, or what happens in the exam room. And so we have to partner with those who are focused on economic wellness, with emotional wellness and behavioral health in in industry um, across the, the spectrum you know whether it's it's education or childcare it you know it doesn't matter all of these things affect our health because black women are having to make these neg- these decisions and these negotiations every day if you don't have childcare you're under stress if you don't have a job you're under stress if you are feeling isolated you're under stress. And, and what we know now from the research that we've done and our collaboration with, for example, the Black Women's Health Study or the National Black Nurses Association or the mm-hmm. Coalition of 100 Black Women and others is stress really is the number one health issue for Black women. And that is now with, with COVID-19 just been put in stark relief. But we know that if we can address those determinants of stress, then black women can make the kinds of choices they need to live as healthy as they can. But we have to look at our health as it exists in society, which means it touches a number of areas, a number of factors touch our health. So we have to work with as many partners and are happy to Work with as many partners as we can.
2: Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna get into a, a big new collaboration, um, coalition that you have going, and and you you you've talked about um, COVID nineteen. So I want to I want to jump into that and disparities. We're gonna pause there and take a quick break. You're listening to HPS Insights.
1: Hamilton Place Strategies HPS is an analytical public affairs consulting firm with offices in Washington D.C., New York, and California. HPS uses substantive analysis to understand complex topics and create public affairs tools to explain issues to target audiences and reach critical stakeholders. We achieve our clients' goals by enhancing understanding of issues, products, and companies, and ultimately improving outcomes. Learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at hps insight.
2: We're back on HPS Insights, and we're joined today with Linda Goler blount the President and CEO of the Black Women's Health Imperative. And Linda, you've given us a great orientation to the work, and uh, Kristen, something that we talk about a lot at HPS and I know is on everybody's mind is just broad health disparities and of course,
4: uh, COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. And Linda, I'd love to quickly go back to before the break, you talked about stress and how it affects the health of Black women and also how um, BWHI's origin, you know, was founded in the concept of self-care. And that's certainly something we've heard a lot about during the pandemic as folks have been isolated. But what does self-care mean, you know, when it comes to Black women in a way that it can affect their health? Sometimes people will say, you know, get a pedicure or, or relax, but what does that really look like in a, in a meaningful way that can affect the health of of black women? Yeah,
3: that's a a really great question. And and those things help, you know, pedicures getting away um, that sort of thing, but self-care for us really has to do with how we're, how we see ourselves in society, much of messaging, no matter what it is, whether it's health related or education, or just general messaging aimed at Black women essentially blames them for their condition. It blames them for being obese. It blames them for having hypertension. It blames them for losing children at childbirth. And so much of our self-care is focused on undoing that narrative that we are, we are, there's nothing wrong with us, and I, and I say this all the time, we are not broke and broke down, and that's not how Black women see themselves. We have plenty of studies where we ask Black women to define health, and they in fact define it in psychosocial terms, like I'm calm, I'm at peace, I'm in control. Avoiding disease or physical health or disease states really doesn't even enter into the conversation, and that's been validated by the Black Women's Health Study, plus our own social listening work. But what the message we get is that you're wrong, and what we say to black women is you are worthy you are valuable because you did one thing this morning you woke up
2: Mm -hmm. and so
3: we've tried to provide tools and strategies to counter that narrative we ask black women look at the evidence what evidence do you have that something is wrong with you look at all of the wonderful things you've done in your life with your family with your friends and 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 take that as your evidence that nothing's wrong with you while at the same time, do practice meditation or prayer. Do those calming kinds of strategies. Breathe. There's a, a strategy called 579, where you breathe in for five, hold for, for seven, breathe out for nine to lower the cortisol levels because we do have higher cortisol levels. Mm-hmm. There are things that we can do to calm ourselves in the moment, but the really important thing is to not internalize that negative narrative. And if we could, can manage not to do that, then we can do anything.
4: That is so important. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners, Linda. The other question that I had, which I think ties into that, is how does race and gender and this intersectionality impact the quality of care that Black women get um, in terms of having to become their own advocates? I, as a Black woman, I've seen, particularly with older family members, a wide range of experiences within healthcare systems. Um, and so I'd love for you to speak to that.
3: Is we, you know, we often say, I often say Black women live at the intersection of, of racism and gender discrimination and economic oppression. I mean, it's, it's a tough place in society. Indeed. And, you know, just for, to contextualize things for listeners, it's important to know that race is not a risk factor. There's no biologic determinant for race. Racism, however, is a risk factor and racism shows up in a number of ways from how you're treated when you walk in the door to your provider's office. Um, You talk about um, older relatives. Well, your 80-year-old grandmother, when she walks into the doctor's office, needs to be addressed as Mrs. Smith, not, hey, Gladys, how are you? Mm -hmm. She has to be shown respect. Um, When we talk about clinical trials participation, the number one reason people of color and Black people in particular don't participate in clinical trials is because they're not asked, because doctors make a lot of assumptions about what they will and will not do. We see systemic bias in terms of where hospitals and medical care are even located. COVID-19 has been a great example. Testing sites in general were not in Black communities or low-income communities. And for anybody who's tried to get a COVID-19 vaccine right now knows where those vaccination sites are. So there are systems that work against Black health. There's behaviors that work against it. And, you know, we see it get played out in the maternal mortality stories with Black women complaining, knowing something's wrong with them and not getting medical care providers to listen to them, all the way to studies that show that 40% of of doctors believe that Black and Hispanic men have thicker skin and therefore don't feel pain as much as white men and are Mm -hmm. less likely to be prescribed pain medications when they show up in the emergency department. So there are a number of places in both practice and policy that we have to, to focus on in order to really eliminate these disparities, but more importantly, increase the understanding of what the Black patient's experience is and what what health means to the Black population,
4: and how is this playing out in COVID in terms of the service people are re- receiving when they go to medical facilities, um, even to things like willingness to take the vaccine? There was a lot of coverage when the vaccine was first being rolled out toward the end of 2020 that you know Black communities there's not an interest in taking the vaccine, or there's lots of skepticism due to you know historic wrongs. Um, could you speak to some of that? What is your take on, on this and, and just, you know, how the Black community is dealing with COVID and what might be different um, due to disparities?
3: Well, we've seen the, the, the disparities, which we predicted back in March. You know, the Black population is, you know, two to three times more likely to get COVID-19, certainly twice as likely to die. I mean, we, we, we saw that. We saw some pretty horrendous examples. Dr. Susan Moore who knew she had COVID-19, tried to tell, tell her, her, colleague, physis- her physician colleagues what was wrong. She died. Recently, there was a man who had been turned away from a hospital, but a Black man three times died in the hospital parking lot.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So these are, unfortunately, are not isolated um, incidences. Um, I, I'm trying to have some, some optimism um, in, in that the, the COVID-19 vaccine, as I understand it, had 10% black participation, both both the Pfizer, um, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines are 94, 95% effective. So that means that they are effective in the black population. We don't have any data to show that that black vaccine recipients in trials had any worse outcomes than white vaccine um, participants. But two things, as you point out, We need to be concerned about vaccine hesitancy because of the historical abuses in the medical care system that Black and brown people have experienced over years um, and where the vaccines are taking place. But right now, Kristen, vaccine hesitancy doesn't seem to be the issue. Vaccine availability seems to be the issue.
4: I think that's right. Yeah. Again,
3: black people are being vaccinated at a fraction of the rate of white people, and that's not as of right now because they don't want to be vaccinated, they simply can't. They don't have access to it.
2: Can I can I jump in here Linda because I want to ask you, you know, if do you believe that an equitable distribution of the vaccine is still possible?
3: It, it is still possible. Sure. Yeah. Um, under the previous administration, there was absolutely no political will for that. And even addressing COVID-19, the strategy was just to let herd immunity occur naturally through infection. So under this new administration, the biden Hears administration, we've talked to the COVID-19 task force. There is The problem is they have such a deep hole to dig themselves out of, this is going to take some time. Yes, But it is possible, it is absolutely possible to get vaccine to the people where they need it. Look at um, companies like oh amazon ups they have no trouble getting to any pla anybody any place, so we can get vaccines there, but we need a strategy to understand where they need to go and then to look at the infrastructure to make sure that it 's in place
4: right. And just my last question on this kind of run is, how optimistic are you that the pandemic's illumination of health disparities is going to spur meaningful and lasting changes? It's been laid bare, you know, with these twin experiences, if you will, in the pandemic. How optimistic are you that this will change something moving forward?
3: Well, I'm optimistic that things can happen. Last spring, apparently, we discovered health disparities were a thing. And then later <laughs> on, we discovered that racism was a thing. Yes, um, yes. And <laughs> To your point, you know, we're gonna add the third pandemic of the economic fallout. Um, right. you know, so many black women, for example, who a year ago were not even considered to be essential are suddenly essential and now have to face an often angry and unmasked public because we can't work from home. So with the, the, form- the formation of an equity office in the White House with this emphasis on, on equity in, in government agencies, health and all policies approach, we can actually change the narrative and, and institute policies that make health disparities and the elimination of health disparities a priority. And from a policy perspective, there are a number of bills um, on the House floor right now and the Senate focused on eliminating health disparities that the Black Women's Health Imperative is obviously involved in. So it can happen. It's going to take political will, and I think for the first time in a long time, we actually have that political will.
2: Yeah, and Linda, you you raise a good point. The people being appointed to these positions matter. I mean, I do believe this is this has been the most diverse administration in in history. I know that that's a point that this administration talks about, but having you know people of color and having black people and um, in positions of power and having the will of this administration does make a difference and we're going to we're going to take a quick ba- a, a quick break and come back and let's talk a little bit more about the new administration and and jump into this new work that you're leading on um on on specifically on diversity and rare disease we'll take a quick break and you're listening to
1: HPS insights Did you know it can take five years to reach a rare disease diagnosis, but even longer for Black and other people of color who face disparities in access to care and are underrepresented in clinical trials? On February 23rd, the Black Women's Health Imperative will host the full launch meeting of the first of its kind Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, backed by a steering committee of advocacy, community, and industry leaders. The time for action to combat the challenges facing minorities with rare disease is now. On February 23rd, the coalition will convene stakeholders from across the healthcare space and announce its recommendations for a path forward. To learn more about the coalition and join the meeting, visit rarediseasediversity.org. We're back
2: on HPS Insights in conversation with Linda Goler Blount, P- president and CEO of Black Women's Health Imperative. So Linda, I want to turn us to um, really important and interesting work that, uh, that you all are undertaking, a new project that you've been undertaking um, on a new coalition focused on um, diversity and rare disease, the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition. Um, I suspect a lot of our listeners might not be very familiar with rare disease and the unique challenges that rare disease patients face. And I think, you know, with your background um, as a scientist and public health, walk us through that. I know you have a a personal connection to this as well.
3: Yeah, we, we often don't. about rare diseases. I mean, if if you're not experiencing it um, yourself or have a family member, it's it's generally not on your radar screen, but there are 7,000 at least rare diseases and only about 500 have cures. And part of why uh, the Black Women's Health Imperative is involved, um, you know, one sort of obvious reason would be sickle cell disease. And most people have heard of sickle cell. Yes. But also, there's, there's, it's part of a broader conversation. When I first started at the Black Women's Health Imperative, probably for the first five years or so, I would get 10 or 12 phone calls a year from researchers, from pharmaceutical companies, looking for participants for their clinical trials because they couldn't find any Black participants. And my answer was always no. I, I said, I don't run a talent agency for your clinical trial. <laughs> but i'm happy to talk about why you're calling me i'm happy to talk about why you are having trouble finding black and brown participants and no one took me up on that offer and it is because the 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 leadership in the pharmaceutical industry did not want to have to talk about tuskegee or henrietta laggs or j marion sims and when the opportunity to sort of talk about rare diseases came up what I met was a group of people who were not afraid to have that conversation. Um, So I I happened to meet Eric Dubay and Eve Dreyer of of Trevere, and they were were not afraid to have this conversation and they they were sort of talking about what they were doing around kidney disease, which also disproportionately impacts the black uh, population. And for me, I mean, it was the right thing to do as an organization, but for me, it was personal because my, my daughter, um, who has been married for, for a couple of years now, and, and you know, is thinking about starting a family, three years ago was diagnosed with something called FSGS, which has a very long name of focal segment, glomerulosclerosis, um, but it's a, it's a scarring of kidneys. And so she, her, her journey began with uh, swell, swollen ankles, and, and we went through this process of it must be the heat. No, it's not the heat. Then she went to a vascular surgeon and no, that wasn't it. And finally got a, a diagnosis in, so if she, her symptoms presented in, in July, she got a diagnose, diagnosis in November, which is unheard of. It is so fast,
2: but- and This is as an adult, she was experiencing this, this as is, an adult. Yeah,
3: as an adult, but her father is a physician. Her mother is an epidemiologist. Those parents know, could pick up the phone and call department heads at leading academic institutes, have plenty of friends in medical care. So her journey from symptoms to diagnosis and treatment was very short because of her parents who could stop what they were doing and focus their attention on her and, and make those connections. For most people, they do not have that opportunity. They don't have access to leading researchers they don't happen to have in their own personal social network the heads of major right. healthcare right. systems and so the, these two things sort of came together for me and then for the black women's health imperative to, to finally address the issue of why this takes so long this journey from diagnosis from symptoms to diagnosis to treatment and why we are having so much difficulty finding black and brown participants in clinical trials. Yeah. So that is our our focus to not only to educate the everyday woman on clinical trials and why she should participate but really more importantly providers and researchers on the importance of diversity and inclusion.
2: Yeah. And let's talk more about the the rare disease diversity coalition you formed and you you mentioned it was really the, the a vision that came between um, you and, and black women 's Health and Trevere, and it 's broader than just black and brown women. so share what was behind the idea to stand up a whole new coalition focused on diversity and rare disease
3: so in, in you know my good fortune to to meet um, Eric Dubay, you know he shared this commitment to including people who are left out of of research, and to your point, it is not just race and ethnicity it is sexual orientation, it is gender identity, it is geography, it is income. There are so many factors that members of of, the, the society, of society face that are barriers. I mean, we know often providers don't ask, but also the way clinical, the clinical research process is structured makes it difficult for people to participate. They may, they may live a long way from a trial site, um, it costs money. If you've got to move someplace, or you need child care so you can get time off from work, it may threaten your work. You may not have the kind of job that allows you to take time off. So, through my part, our partnership with Trevere and then bringing on patient adv- advocacy groups, researchers, providers, people, others in the industry, we're able to to examine what these issues are, what these barriers are, and then work together to one, highlight them, put strategies in place to eliminate them, but really importantly work on the policies that reinforce them. Because there's just, there's no reason for us to make it so difficult to participate in clinical research, which means the more difficult it is, the less likely there are therapeutics, the less likely there are cures, and the more people are suffering. And so this Rare Disease Diversity Coalition has come together and I'm, I'm just so thrilled and so proud that we have such strong voices at the table to focus on what we need to do to make sure that any person, any family living with rare disease has access to the best possible information and therapeutics possible.
2: Yeah, and you, I mean, you mentioned, Linda, that a lot of organizations have been working in parts of this. I think what's interesting about the this new coalition and the rare disease diversity coalition is this is the first time and I'm noticing a pattern with your work here, Linda, this is the first time all of these people are coming together in one place to do this work, which will be so powerful in this moment. And I'm wondering how you how you're thinking about leveraging this new moment of we were talking earlier about the new administration and this all of the things that are coming together in this moment. You know, what's that look like?
3: There, There's absolutely a multiplier effect here by having industry. And as a part of the RDDC, there's also an industry alliance. So there's a special role for, for those who are in industry. But the, the advocacy groups, I mean, we worked with, the, for example, the National Organization of Rare Diseases or NefCure. Those groups in and of themselves have huge networks so that they can... Uh, expose their members to the kinds of information and issues that we're focused on. Provider groups like the National Medical Association, like the National Black Nurses Association, the National Hispanic Medical Association, the Rural Health Association. All of these groups have huge memberships that need to have access to this information and to the strategies and solutions that will come out of this. So we meet periodically to get the best thinking and and the, and the best efforts towards solving some of these really difficult issues. But until now, they've not been focused on. So again, to your point, the first, we now have an opportunity to do what hasn't been done before, make the issue of living with rare disease and diversity in, uh, a, a, an issue and, and put it on the agenda of leading policymakers like folks at the White House. Yeah.
4: Are there any examples, you know, when it comes to representation in clinical trials, are there any examples within the rare disease space or even outside of it where it's gone well or that, you know, could serve as models or or where there currently is a fair amount of black and brown representation or is there, or does that not yet exist?
3: Well, I I wish there were lots of examples. Um, Obviously for sickle cell disease research, there's going to be a significant percentage of of black participation, but, but unfortunately Clinical trials participation, um, when it comes to race and ethnicity, is really underrepresented. Only about 4% of clinical trial participants are Black or brown anyway. Mm. Um, rare disease, by definition, is more exclusive. The numbers are smaller. And this is part of why the RDC is really, you know, for me, encouraging, because if you are a rare disease researcher, you, you, you're having trouble perhaps finding participants anyway, because, because the numbers of people with the disease that you're interested in is small. Um, we, we see examples of what happens when there isn't diversity. Um, right now, you know, dexamethasone is, is a treatment for severe COVID-19, doesn't work as well in African-Americans. Well, mm-hmm. there were no African-Americans in the study, um, but we also see deba- disparities in research. Cystic fibrosis has a huge advocacy community and the funding for cystic fibrosis is seven times that of sickle cell. There are 30,000 cystic fibrosis patients and 100,000 sickle cell patients. So even within the advocacy group, you know, advocacy is a luxury. You have to have the time and resources to be an advocate. So, so the, the RDDC gets to focus on a number of different aspects of diversity and inclusion and get us to the point from Kristen, where we can say yes, there are some good examples where there was great inclusion in a rare disease trial, and look at what happened. Look at the therapeutics that came out of that.
2: And Linda, you 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 just mentioned a number of um, elements of work that this RDDC is going to tackle on the policy front, and the things that they and uh, that they're putting together in an action plan to be. Um, you know, I, th- I think something really impressive about this work, in addition to the The pandemic, the twin pandemics, everything going on, Black Women's Health and with the, the leadership of Trevere that you mentioned, you've stood this up. You've established an outstanding steering committee. I mean, really incredible breadth of people who have been working to do this all in a remote environment in less than a year. You've had working groups that have come together and put together a policy agenda. And I know that later this month, this is going to sort of do a full coalition launch, inviting others into this and putting forward that action plan. I mean, that is, for other people, that would take years to do. And you did it all during all these pandemics going on i mean it's really all the while,
3: we, we couldn't even see each other in person we yeah
2: and never being together in person so i mean it's 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 been but I think it speaks to what you're talking about is the need and the urgency for this, mm-hmm. and people were were you you have identified something that was so needed that it could bring all these powerful forces together so quickly
3: you're you're absolutely right and the thing about the, the steering committee members, you know, again, starting with Trevere and, and Eric Dubay, is they're passionate about this. This means everything. And this group was willing to do whatever it took to make this happen because they realized how important it really is and, how, and, and what their own commitment is. I mean, all of these groups bring a significant commitment to eliminating what should frankly just not be the case. We should not have trouble, there should not be barriers to get people to participate in trials that could lead to cures. And so this Rare Disease Diversity Coalition is committed to making sure that that these barriers um, no longer exist and that we address, as you mentioned, these sort of four pillars, these four areas of focus of eliminating delays in diagnosis, making sure that there's policies that support access to care and participation in, in clinical research Focus on perv- patient and provider education and engagement so we can stop having the situation where providers are making decisions on behalf of their patients by not including them in clinical trials. And the fourth is looking at what we need to do around research and clinical trials, because we know what becomes evidence depends on who's asking the questions and who they're asking. And so if they're not asking the right questions, if the right people aren't asking the right questions, then we continue to have what we have. And so this is a, an opportunity to really address all of these issues at their roots to make sure that, you know, hopefully five, 10 years from now, we're not still having this conversation.
2: Absolutely. Well, I, I know um, one of the thing that's, things that's been impressive, Linda, is that you've, you've done all of this with your trademarks and Black women health, Black Women's Health Imperatives trademarks of true inclusion and collaboration. And you're not only doing the work with the steering committee, you're opening it up for others to join and opening the content up to inform, which is such a smart way to do this. And I know that I hope people that are listening will get in touch with us and get in touch with you about how they can support this work, whether they're in this space or they just want to to use this moment to advance this work. Um, and it's, it's been, been great. We're, we're so grateful for you taking the time to, to come and talk to us today. I'm thrilled to have Kristen with us to join us in this work. And, um, and it's been a great conversation and um, a pleasure. You are, um, Linda, you are someone, if people do not know you in the work of Black Women's Health Imperative, you are absolutely one to watch, an incredible leader, meeting the moment, and we thank you so much for joining us on HPS Insights.
4: Yes, thank you,
3: Linda. This has been terrific. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you, Kristen. If I could add one more thing. Next week, the riseforrare.org website goes live, so I encourage anyone who wants to find out about the coalition and about rare disease to sign up for the notifications. And on February 23rd, there will be a full coalition meeting of the Rare, Diversity, Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, I'm sorry. It is open to the public. So anyone can listen in, ask questions, learn more and learn what they can do to help advance this cause of so making sure that we can shorten that journey and bring therapeutics and cures to those who need them. Thank you.
2: Absolutely, thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.